the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. So hello and welcome to the Forward Together podcast. I'm Jared Dean, joined as always today by Paul Gosling. Paul, you in good form? Hi Gerard, as ever. So this podcast has been a series of conversations with community and political representatives, but for our last episode and for this one, we've uh, had a conversation with Paul, the local writers. That's right. It's uh, Joe Egan was the dramatist behind the crack and everything, which mm-hmm. uh, perhaps we should declare a couple of interests here. <laughs> the Hollywell Trust, which you are employed by, and the Playhouse Theatre that I am the chairman of, or the chair of. I mean, those were the organisations behind the Fracket Everything, which was produced with money from the European Union. And Joe was engaged by the Playhouse Theatre to dramatise the story of children who died during the Troubles. Very, very touching episodes, very upsetting events. And we wanted to ask Joe, as a community theatre practitioner and as the dramatist of these stories, how this affected her Mm. and how she felt... It affected those families that were engaged in that process and what we could learn in terms of looking at events in the past, legacy issues, how we could learn from this in terms of building the future. Yeah. And she talks about the importance of community theatre and the impact that it can have, but also the pressures of delivering uh, an exercise such as this. That's right. And not just the crack and everything, but also she was one of the dramatists previously uh, looking at the history of the Shankill um, in terms of the, the production uh, Crimea Square, which looked at the Shankill over a, a century, uh, including the Shankill bomb and the Shankill feud. So she has examined these issues from a variety of different community perspectives. Uh, mm. And and yes, I mean, clearly, when we hear Joe's interview in a few moments, you know, you recognise the challenges this gives the individual in terms of dealing with these events and the impact and and the pressures and above all the fear of not doing justice to the stories of the people who are mm. left behind who are generations after decades after still grieving for yeah. lost families especially when you're talking about children who died and in one case someone who was never even recognized as a death of the troubles it was regarded yeah. as a road accident even That's though true. it was actually an event of the, uh, a death of the troubles and she talks about the rationale behind the work and the fact that we can't just be glorifying the past or overloading ourselves with the atrocities that happened in the past. Absolutely. I was very struck by the phrase she used, uh, which was, you know, we don't want to do troubles born. Yeah. You know, you, you, you have to do this honestly. You don't actually try. You're not trying to do something, you know, that's dramatically... Uh, trying to be, you know, a bestseller or something. You're trying to actually tell stories in ways that heals people. You know, mm-hmm. you're trying to build something positive out of terrible events. And the purpose of this is to make Northern Ireland and the whole of Ireland a better place. Okay, well, let's hear the conversation that you had with Joe. I'm now interviewing Joe Egan, um, the uh, playwright, uh, authored uh, The Crack and Everything. Uh, Joe, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, Tell me, first of all, how has your research for that uh, dramatic work affected you? Well, that's kind of a strange one to answer because you're working with people who've lived with a lifetime of grief, so you always feel a little bit embarrassed about talking about stuff like that. 
it's a continuum so it wouldn't just be working on the crack and everything it, it, there's stuff that would have started when I first became involved in working in community theatre and I did a very, very large project that was very intense and it was the first large-scale cross-community play here in, in Belfast. Um, and community theatre at the time it had uh, you know, lots of single identity pieces and this was the first big piece bringing everyone together so it was very intense for about a year and bringing people together to, to work it was in throughout uh, the end of 1998 and most of 1999 and, and you were understaffed and underpaid so you'd all the kind of pressures of life but you'd all the pressures of trying to make a project work and it was very very stressful and after that project, um, I was conscious. What normally happens with a, with a piece of theatre is there's a lot of intense work that goes on. And then you have to get it together for the preview or the opening night. And then there's immediately there's this wonderful sense of relief that, you know, all that intense pressure is over. But I still didn't work properly for about a year after the wedding play. So I went into other stuff. I did do other work, but I couldn't have gone into another project like that. And I was exhausted and drained, and I had anxiety. And I had what I now recognise as I had been living on adrenaline for a very long time throughout the, the, that process. And afterwards, what happens is your body just wants to keep going, but you're trying to relax, but you can't and you don't know what's going on. So nobody ever said to me, this is what happens after a very intense project. Um, so the next time I did anything as big as the wedding play was a play that I did up in the Shankill called Crimea Square. And that was a two-year project, and I did a master's in the middle of it as well. But the really intense part of it was again for about another year and I was doing a lot of work and actually Shankill was a very depressed area to be in and I was unlike everybody else in the city because when the flag protests went up and there was a little bit of violence and there was a little bit of fighting back, actually the energy with the people that I was working with improved and who they were and how they wanted to represent themselves really mattered to them. So a project that I actually thought was going to collapse because when I first saw the flag protest, oh, that's what's going to happen, it didn't. It actually probably strengthened it a bit and it certainly made my life as an artist easier working with that. On that project, I was working with four other people from the Shankill to create the play, so they were working with me. And there was all sorts of um, politics involved with that and stress and then there's a strange thing that happens because I'm from outside the community so so as the project is gaining a lot of momentum there's a lot of people kind of going oh look at she to be doing this and what she why is she representing us or and I wasn't like the play was but there was, so but anyway so there was a lot of there was a lot of other politics aside from the fact that you were also trying to train people to perform you're trying to get them to write you were trying to get your team together um, so, I mean, I used to wake up at four in the morning remembering, because four in the morning is when you remember all the things that you've forgotten to do during the day. So I'd have to get up. And I'd done the same at the wedding play. I remembered exactly the same thing. And I'd done it on other projects too. So, but that that's going on for months. And I knew, yet again, that I, I knew. I just thought, oh, I'm just chawing through this on adrenaline. There's going to be a price to pay for this afterwards. So... I was prepared for that and I thought, you know, if you really, really look after yourself for about three months after this, you should be okay. But what happened, I didn't get the normal um, relief after the play went up. 
my head kept, I kept waking up every night in panic, in real panic, in, in the, whatever dream I'd been having, there was something I'd forgotten to do, something I'd forgotten to do, and it was majorly, majorly important, and I would wake up and I wouldn't know where I was in a state of panic, and that, that happened every night, uh, I finished that project in the November, that probably went on to about the January. Um, and again, I, you, I would be exhausted. You, you know, you've got this battle going on between adrenaline and desperately wanting to, to relax and chill out. Um, and I, I probably would have been really exhausted for um, a year or so after that as well, and I would have done smaller projects. Um, so when I came up to do the crack and everything, and um, it, it's the subject matter, and I can remember, I remember saying to Pauline, you know, when I went up and, you know, I tendered for it, but I had no idea what the theme was. She said, you've got six months to do this in. And I said, Pauline, that's a two-year project, you know. If you want me to train the actors, that is, that's like, that's like a two-year project. And she said, well, we've got six months. You've got to do it in six months. So I immediately knew that was going to be a problem for my health, that I was going to pay the price for that afterwards. But I, I really loved the project. And at this stage, I'm kind of going, well... I know this now. I'm not that person who, uh, in 1999, so, you know, when, when when all that other stuff happens. But I did observe other things, and I think I said it in, in, in this article that I recently wrote in there for this magazine, The View. I noticed that I would be afraid. I was afraid. In what sense afraid? Um... Well, I had all the traditional fears that I wasn't going to be able to write the play that reflected what the people wanted, and that fear drives you as an artist. And I, what, what I began to do on the crack and everything was separate out... I was beginning in my head to be able to separate out all those fears. So there was a fear of the artist not being able to deliver the job properly. There was the fear that I wouldn't be able to finish it in time. There was the fear that, that, um, that, then I, that I would let the families down. Um, there was all of that, but then there was also this, these other fears began to creep in that, that you know, I was hearing about death so much that in some way I would call it to me. And, and I had two, two small grandsons at the time, and I thought, if I'm with them, I might pull... And the other part of me was going, oh, this is really interesting, look at the way you're thinking. And so I was already sort of beginning to distance myself from the feeling, but even towards the end of the play, I thought, I'll just... Look, you know what, I'm just going to not go down and see them for the for the last month and, and just, I don't want to be carrying that fear around. Um, I found myself more distressed, but I thought, that's fine. I found myself distressed during um, during the wedding play in Crimea Square, but I wouldn't have, you know, there, was, there would have been levels of anxiety. Um, you would have become more upset with with power struggles within the within the cast and within the organising stuff. This time, you know, I just kind of thought you just you just remain focused, you know, because you learn that after um, a while. So you're not the only person who's afraid, you see, because all these projects that we do are very frightening for everybody involved. 
so with something like Crimea Square, you know, I had a, a very... Oh, yeah. uh, my, my playwrights at times would have been frightened that they had, were misrepresenting their communities. Some of the things we were trying to say within the play were worrying them. <coughs> so you weren't, you know, so everybody around you was afraid uh, that they're going to either letting their community down or that they're going to make a fool of themselves on stage or that it's not going to happen, that I've led them up the garden. I mean, they would say things like that. This is really going to happen. You're not really leading us up the garden path. Um, so so you begin to recognise that as well. And, and the best thing you can do is just put your head down and mind your own business and just focus on the job that you've been asked to do. Uh, and I've kind of learnt that because as a community facilitator as well, quite often you're put in the position of being the one who makes everything okay for everybody else. Um, and, and, you, and you can do that, but you have to be very clear about... Uh, about priorities that you have in that so as I come to to the crack and everything for instance I'm being asked to interview people to speak about the death of you know brother or sister or child um, what are the needs of those people that you're interviewing as well so for some people once I'd opened the can of worms and they needed to be able to speak for three hours and for other people um, they were, very, you know, they very clearly had finished speaking about something in after 45 minutes and didn't want to speak about it anymore. And so, if I was going to phone them back and ask for more information, I had to be really, really clear about what I wanted to get from them because it was it was too much to spend any longer. Um, so you're trying to facilitate all of that as well as your own insanity going on in the background. Um, and yeah, I just would have found myself very, very upset about everything that was happening, you know, Brexit or uh, tragedies that were going on around the world um, and the pain that other people must be experiencing because of that, you know, and, and actually the loss of children, the loss of family, the loss of, of everything that was coming up in the families that they were telling me, you know, that... Um, the loss of the potential of, of that person who was in their family and the loss of that future life that they could have had. Um, yeah, so. And this sense of exhaustion, to what extent was that related simply to the fact that you've been involved in intensive community theatre and to what extent is it specific to the themes you're dealing with, the tragedies of the troubles? The exhaustion? Mm. All because that all becomes much of a muchness. Like I, you know, you would know sometimes when you'd been in intense conversation with people, um, you just didn't want to go and speak. You know, I'm I'm like a chatter. You know, I can talk. And you know, if I'd gone away for weekends with friends, I could talk for Ireland. Like there'd be no reason why we wouldn't stop talking. Whereas I would find myself, I would be, I would have enough of people, and I would have enough of talking. I mean, it sounds as if you were traumatised by the experience. Yeah, you are traumatised by the experience. Yeah. And and what was the impact on the participants? To what extent did they feel released? To what extent did they feel sometimes maybe a bit re-traumatised? I felt that they. Well, I. You never know. You know, you start mm. the projects uh, with. Uh, 
with something in your mind that you're doing and by the end of that project you you have delivered what you said you're going to deliver but there's always different perspectives that have crept in it's not quite the play you, you thought you were going to deliver I didn't know what I was I did I knew I was writing a, a play about six or seven children that have been killed in the trouble but I did, a part of me was going, what, what's, why, what is this doing? What's the purpose of this? And, and each project has its own accomplishment. What I really felt was that most of the people that I interviewed, even if they hadn't been, you know, even if, if bombing hadn't been part of the, of the family experience, it did feel as if their capacity to tell a story coherently had been fragmented, had been blown apart, so that people go to tell you a story, and it's that traumatic storytelling, that they spiral off into different things. They can't quite pull it together, they can't quite grab it in the way that you know you or I might want to tell a story. We know how we're going to tell the order of it, and we tell it. Um, the, the, the other things would almost come into the memory, and they'd be in the middle of ten, we're off on another. And so when I was putting the stories together, I would I would myself get the transcriptions and then I would chronologically put it together so that I began to see things in the story that I couldn't actually get from their storytelling because it had been so fragmented. And it felt to me at the end of it when I was when we were doing performing the stories that I was giving them back a coherent story that they hadn't been able to pull together. Now they can always add to that. But I, and I felt that that was what I was trying to do for the audience as well. I needed a, co a coherent story where they could clearly see the wrongs and the rights of the injustices of the story and hear what had happened, you know. Um, and so, so that was the, that was the, um, I think that, that seemed, that seemed to surprise the participants. I don't think any of them had foreseen that. It seemed to surprise and, and um, and, and and was a joyful aspect of it. I could see that there was kind of happiness to have kind of got this sort of cogent story back to get back. So I felt I felt that was quite. I, I liked that element of it. I remember one of the participants saying that what she got, or one of the things that she got from engagement, was learning about hidden parts of her family's history. Yeah. Well, in some families they were more hidden than others so the first you know the, with the Harkin family um, when we performed and I it was before rehearsal started so I got six professional actors to perform all the stories for the families so rather than the family sign off on the interviews the family signed off on the, the performance, the script reading of the actual script. So that was when they signed on the interviews, the transcriptions, uh, so that they would all be comfortable with that moving forward to represent them. And some of them did suggest very small amendments. Um, uh, so with the Harkin family, when the Mrs. and I'd interviewed Mrs. Harkin and. Um, uh, Tony Doherty had come with her um, and he'd been part of telling Damien's story in a memoir and I interviewed another man called Jimmy Toy who has, whose family had a shop close to where Damien was killed So, and, and I interviewed Bree Charkin who was Mrs Harkin's daughter and and I brought put the kind of wove all their stories together into that chronological timeline of, what, of, of events 
So other family members came and other family members who were born after Damien was killed and, um, a, and a grandson who had actually made a little film about Damien. When they saw the script reading, not only had they, they were hidden elements, they hadn't heard the story before and that was shocking. The other thing that I found, and and I'm, it's it's a, it's it's part of Irish culture now for me. Is there was a play done a couple of years ago by a guy called uh, Enda Walsh called the Walworth Farce, and in it, he looks at the, um, well, for me, I took from the play that he looks at how trauma and traumatised storytelling has influenced the Irish nation since the famine and that blew me out of the water because that is you know the whole sort of narrative structure of who we are as people is 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 wrapped up in traumatised storytelling and I thought wow that is such an extraordinary insight because one of the things we would do as community arts facilitators is we would get people to work together so that they're sharing their thoughts and they're moving from traumatised storytelling to progressive things Thinking, using each other's building blocks to start thinking something forward, you know, um, in, into sort of a chronological or, or organising time as they wish, you know, so that they're, they're using creativity to shift from, from one, pl- one place to another. So I then began to see within the families that, that there was this artistic streak that was coming out because Darren had already, although nobody had told him the story, was trying to make a film about his uncle that had died long before he was born and I thought that is extraordinary that that actually that is that the creativity manifests itself from trauma within a family and I thought oh that's something as a community artist that I'm going to keep my eye on because that's really really interesting um, and I, I, I kind of do believe it my, myself and I've, I've actually even since then I've been looking out for it and it is very interesting that, that you know you, you talk to people about the family of origin that they come from as artists and that quite often there are these very interesting um, tidbits that they choose to tell you that influence them as a as an artist. So they were the two things that came out for me. And that's a very interesting point because I, I observe in Derry and Belfast that there's a lot of people who live through the troubles who've written memoirs. That's more right. so than you would experience where I come from in England. Absolutely. And that perhaps is a way for people to try and make sense and also to 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 reduce the emotional impact that they're, they're feeling of their experiences. But even being able to get that story back, because, you know, that you know that, that thing about not being able to make meaning and all, you know, that, that what I would call traumatised storytelling, where you tell the same... It's like you want somebody to step in and say... You know, if you know, to, to, to in some way give them the answer to something, or to in some may, may t- way tie that up neatly for them, or there's something going on for people when they keep on telling you the story over and over and over again. So, so it, it completely makes sense, you know. And um, um, what do you hope that audiences and wider society gain from the work that you've been doing? I wouldn't necessarily have chosen to tell a story about six children that died, but that was the brief I got, and and, and I'm very glad I did it. And, I mean, I would have shied away from it because of all the reasons that a lot of people would shy away from telling the stories of of six children that died, you know, and and the level of pain that's going to be contained within that. Um, 
So I'm very glad that that, that process put, put us, you know, made me sort of rise to some kind of artistic challenge. But in my work, uh, quite often it is all around narrative. And if I'm teaching, because uh, quite often I train people uh, to be community performers. Um, and, and one of the things that, you, that they do is, so say for instance, I have a very small professional theatre company called Maka Productions, right? And, um, and, and so it's a professional theatre company. So the minute you've got people from a community who join it, they immediately begin to change the narrative of themselves. So, so as I've had in the past, you know, you could have a single mother who's really struggling to keep her head above water, financially, mentally, emotionally. And she joins the company. Now, before that, she's been a single parent with a two-year-old child or whatever, who's poor and lives, say, in West Belfast. Once she joins this this organisation, she suddenly begins to change the narrative about herself. And in a sense, that kind of seduces her into doing the work that she needs to do. Because sometimes it's very difficult for people to commit if they haven't, you know, been able to maybe to commit to education or commit to employment. And, it, you know, sometimes they fall by the wayside and you go back to them and say, come on, come on, come on, you really enjoyed that, come on, join us again. And before they know where they are, like maybe two years later, they're having to get up on stage and they're really having to commit to what they have to go through for rehearsals. It's very, very demanding. But the payoff that they get, and, and actually we, we kind of do train them very well so that when they're on stage... They, they feel as if they are actually part of a professional production. They're not being um, patronised like, you know, uh, some, some piece of theatre. They know that what they're doing is in- incredibly good. So they can come out of the process and, and actually we did have a single parent who was probably smoking too much hash and getting drunk a lot at the weekends, finding it very difficult to keep her head above water and she was with us for two years and she's since gone on to train uh, as a reflexologist and then she's trained in, 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 in uh, body massage as well So, and she's gone into the alternative health in, which is fantastic because it's beginning to educate her about how she needs to look after herself and uh, and all of that stuff so, and I know that has come out of two years so that is predominantly you know when people engage us with the process that is what happens if you've got two years with people because you, you can't do that in six months you've got to have a long sustained practice of them turning up to the up to the plates uh, and you know so so yeah I can I can do short I can turn stuff around in a short amount of time but the amount of benefit to those people as, as performers won't be as good as what you can achieve because it is the practice it's about embedding a creative practice in terms of the impact on the audience two themes that uh, have affected me is within the crack of everything one of the children that died was not included in lost lives because he was knocked over by uh, an army vehicle during uh, street troubles and that sort of has a resonance in terms of the the broader impact of troubles that are you know you can't simply count them in terms of the number of dead you've got much wider impacts and the other thing is one of the most uh, affecting comments i've heard in recent weeks was from a school pupil at one of the events from um, wave where the school pupil said it was so important for him to have been present where people who had been very badly 
physically uh, damaged by bomb blasts were there so that the school children could see the experience of the individuals uh, because at school they learnt the politics of it they didn't learn, hear, feel the personal stories and the personal stories across community by their nature because people are affected equally in different communities and and in a sense that's what your work's doing as well it's, it's, it's taking it out of the the numbers and putting the, 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 the personal story there on yeah. stage and, and, and actually when we did Crimea Square it was looking at 100 years of Shankill history so we started in 1912 when you know Belfast had just booming and it's got this extraordinary wealth and 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 people are very proud of their city and um and and we finished in sort of 2013 on the shankle the, the play finished so we've come through you know uh, the, the 1912 but then we've got the first world war poverty afterwards in the 20s and 30s second world war 50s beginning to have you know really get upwardly mobile 60s troubles decimation um, uh, and then, of course, you've got the Shankle bomb in, in the early 90s, and then you have the Shankle feud that comes in the millennium. So you have you have a community on its knees. So so the the young people, and we had quite we were lucky. We had about four or five young boys on the Shankle who were part of that community cast from about. Mm, 13 up to about 16 or 17 and I remember one of them saying afterwards there was a post-show discussion which they loved coming out and being part of and talking about and he said you know I'm always embarrassed about saying I come from the Shankle and he said since I've done the play and he said and I've seen the resilience of my community he said I will never deny them again he said I'm so proud of my community and I thought great great and do you feel there's any risk that the telling of the personal stories can take us backwards rather than forwards? Oh, well, even I myself, I mean, I mean, I, I, I suppose I am a pacifist. I don't believe that violence sorts anything out. And... Um, but, you know, when I went to see... I was very lucky. I went to the film festival last year and I was on, on Quiet Graves in the film fest, Belfast Film Festival. And I remember watching On Quiet Graves and thinking, my God, if I'd seen something like this, uh, you know, I, while the troubles were still going on, I, I don't know that I wouldn't have joined up. But what was brilliant about it was that they had I, Dolores on the same week. And I, Dolores, to me, just is everything about what, why you always felt, you know, that, that, that violence could never lead to anything. Um, so I think, I think that in the singularity, if, if, you know, if we're always talking about the lack of justice that, that victims and survivors have, um, then we could be accused of, of, of maybe inciting people to, to go out and pick up a gun again or engage in violence. But I think that is the duty. I think we have to be able to tell all stories, and that's why, in many ways, it annoys me that so much of the paramilitary story has been told you know, as somebody who's come up from outside Belfast, you know, the unsung heroes are the people that, 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 that hold it all together and, and just kept sort of trying to plug that down the whole time, aren't told, you know, uh, and they're not viewed as being dramatic enough or being interesting enough or actually they could be framed very nicely into a story and told as well. So I think that if we keep missing those stories, we miss a trick. We need to, you know, we, 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 
will be inciting people to, to violence. You know, you can imagine if Unquiet Graves goes out, that could. But it, that I believe very clearly that because that reveals such terrible state um, collusion. Um, so I believe very much in that being being shot, taken out into the light. But I also believe that the other stories have to be told as well. And what do you think that your experience tells us about how we should deal with the past? I think, you know, it's fine to have, I think, counselling and psychotherapy, and I think the correct type of treatment for post-traumatic stress is very, very important. I don't personally believe that we have enough counsellors who can do that, and I think if you speak to somebody like Siobhan O'Neill, she backs that up, and I'm lucky that I have a couple of close friends who have gone through many years of training to be trauma therapists, so I'm aware of, 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 of just how much work they've had to do. But, you know, we can bring as many people, and, and that's a very important part of this, but we can bring as many people into the counselling room as we like. People want to be heard, and they want to be heard in society. They want their stories recognised, and I think we also need to recognise and hear the stories. And I don't know how how we do that without... Um, I know people will become exhausted by it and I think we I think you know I think we have to become more and more skilled and adept you know um I'm not always sure that um that that six people and I, the last piece I did is six people giving testimony and I kind of think well if we keep repeating that style of theatre it's not going to work because you know there, there's got to be something for an audience to be able to catch on so we don't want to do troubles porn you know, you, you don't want that because that's what people have done in the past. But we, you need to fall back then on the dramatic skills. You know, if you if you don't have people who know how to to dramatise something properly, then you'll either have people turning away and not listening, or you, you know you'll have people exhausted. Um, and what happens then is that people then will go back into thinking that their story is not valid. Why isn't my story valid? So film responds to it very very well, and document certain documentaries respond to it very well, uh, and also theatre is. I mean theatre always in a constant state of flux um, but the monologue isn't always the best way to address it and so testimonial theatre will only have uh, you know a lifespan we have to find other ways um, other ways of, of, of doing it and, and, and music and dance also have their place within that I mean and then of course visual arts you know I mean and the other thing is also is looking for stories that can be representative and I, I think you know what was really interesting for me about the crack and everything was it becomes representative of innocence not just children I felt because people are so skeptical that when you kind of say oh you know there was a 16 year old boy who who had not wasn't involved in anything but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time people go I dead on they were you know whereas it was unmistakably that we had these six children and you knew that they were innocent during the storytelling and so they kind of, in many ways, not only did they stand in for children who'd been killed, but they stood in for innocent people who'd been killed as well. They, they encapsulated innocence. So there are other stories that, that we can tell that will also be representative of groupings. Joe Egan, playwright. Thank you very much indeed. OK, uh, that was Joe Egan chatting to Paul there. One of the things that she talks about, and it's come up not just with the artists that we've had the conversation with, but with politicians and community reps, is trauma, again, trauma from the past and, and how we deal with that is something that comes through very strongly there. 
That's right. And one of the things that I was very struck by, and I, I went to see, as you did, the, the crack and everything when it was performed, mm. and we had a, a post-production conversation with the the, 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 the people, including the, the family members who actually performed on stage, their own stories. I was very struck how you had people that saw it, this gave them the opportunity to learn things about their own family's history, which had been locked away, which they never learnt about. Mm. And to have someone who herself was young saying, I did not know this. You know, it was one of those things. It was almost as if it was a guilt in the family, but yeah. it was actually a trauma in the family. And, you know, it's something you don't talk about. But does, do you make things better by not talking about them? Yeah, and Joe says it would. I think part of the gift that she brought to the process was outlining the chronological events that took place in the past. But I find it interesting. Again, it's on trauma, but it's a slightly different take on trauma. Joe talks about all our stories that we tell here since the famine are traumatized stories. That's right. That's right. But the the gift that Joe and other writers have in telling these stories today is about bringing the personal histories, the personal stories mm. to, to people understand. So we're not thinking statistically. We're not thinking about, you know, although so many people died during the famine. Yeah. We're talking not about terrible, you know, three and a half thousand people died in trouble. We're talking about the individuals, the little children that never grew up, the individual personal stories. And that way it becomes much more personal. It becomes much more... Uh, empathetic, you know, you you feel it much more when you see those individual stories and you recognise that, you know, the, the deaths and the troubles were this connected line of individual tragedies. Mm. Joe talks about counselling and how we need spec uh, specific counsellors and people in place to deal with, like, PTSD. That's right. I mean, and, and Joe's quite open about the fact that if you're writing about these things, you need counselling. And we just do not have the size of sector of counselling services being delivered to deal with the level of trauma and hurt within our society. Mm. Okay. Well, on that, that's that for this episode of the podcast. Um, you can subscribe to this through your podcast app or keep an eye out for future episodes through hollywelltrust.com or sluggerotool.com. So thanks to Joe for taking the time to meet with Paul and to Dee Kern and Emer Doherty for production support. Thanks for listening. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme. 